Uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter uh, 27 while you're turning there. Um, just a couple of notes, I guess. Um, uh, number one, we're, we're continuing. So Good Friday service this past Friday night, we read, I mean, for our, our Tenebrae service, we, we just read straight through the, um, the persecution, the, the passion of Christ, the suffering and arrest and crucifixion and burial from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And so this morning, we're, in fact, we're actually going to read a little bit overlap um, from what we read the other night. We're just finishing the story. Yes, we've got uh, one more sermon in First uh, Peter, and Lord willing, uh, that'll be uh, next Sunday. Um, and just to sort of give you a heads up where we're headed next, um, uh, we're going to start Exodus after that. Uh, so um, this morning... Uh, We'll read Matthew 27, uh, beginning in verse 57, and we're going to read through to verse 15 of chapter 28. Um, We normally stand when we read God's word together. Um, This is sort of borderline lengthy. Um, If you're able, let's stand together, even though I just had you sit down a second ago. That's That's why we usually sit for that previous song. Uh, Hear God's word. Uh, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Uh, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene Magdalene and the other Mary uh, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers Uh, to go to Galilee, there they will see me. 
while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, would you be at work in this, your word. Uh, strengthen our faith, uh, encourage our hope, uh, and grow in us a deeper love for Christ and the lost. Uh, we pray all of this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, it's, it's always, good news, I guess, is always good. I mean, that's what makes it good news. Um, but, but maybe in many ways, after a year of what seems like a lot of bad news, um, good news seems especially good to us. We've had a year of, of pandemic. We've had a year of not being able to do stuff not being able to go places, not being able to see people. Uh, there's been a year of, of deep division in the country through the whole election cycle. There's been uh, a year of, of bad news and murders and, and racial tension and all sorts of things. There's been a year of, of global pandemic, which means you're isolated from people. And so that makes all the fears, all the anxieties, all the struggles, all the conflicts um, that much worse, that much more intensified. You would think that after a full year of that, you would need some good news finally. And we think, at least I'm inclined to think, um, Governor Ivey has said for a week or two now, April 9th, the mask order ends and I'm not renewing it. And, and there's a part of me that thinks that is just about the best news I could get because I am, I appreciate the mask and I'm happy to wear them, but I'm getting tired of them. I'm ready to be done. But even that is nothing compared to the passage we just read. The passage we just read is absolutely the single greatest event in human history since creation. The defeat of death and sin in our place by the, the person of uh, Jesus Christ is the greatest news. Any man, any woman, any child, young, old, anywhere in between, in any age could hear. And so this morning, we turn our attention to the greatest news we could get. And the outline this morning, I'm literally taking the angel's words in verse 6. Notice, first of all, the first thing he says is, he is not here. Where exactly is here? Because, you know, Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea clearly was, was wealthy. And he was clearly influential. We see that in other places. We certainly see that in uh, this passage. 
Luke tells us he was a member of the Sanhedrin. In fact, Luke tells us that he was uh, part of the council that voted to put Jesus to death. And we understand uh, he was in the minority. Joseph of Arimathea and probably Nicodemus voted no and, and lost the vote, it appears. He's got linen. He's got a tomb. He's got his own. It's his own personal. I mean, he's he went ahead and bought his burial plot and had it dug out of the rock or or however that that cave sort of cave burial rock stone tomb was made. He's influential. I mean, could you imagine just walking into Governor Ivy's office and saying, hey, look, the the person that the state just put to death by lethal injection, I, I need that body. And Governor Ivy going, okay, here, take it. It's yours. He seems to have wealth. He seems to have influence because he's, he's actually just kind of gone into the office of a Roman governor and said, I want that body. And Pilate said, okay, it's yours. You can have it. Do with it what you will. And we find that in verse 58. It's exactly what Joseph did. And think about that for a second, because he would have needed help getting, I mean, like he didn't get the body down by himself. So there are people involved in this. The the centurion we read about Friday night, he probably was involved. Maybe those around him, maybe he's bossing people around him. Hey, get the body down. And so they get the body of Jesus off of the cross. And they, they give it to Joseph. And Joseph, and we also learn from, from the Gospel of John that Nicodemus helped. Uh, and so Joseph and Nicodemus are preparing the body for burial. Joseph has the linen. Nicodemus has what amounts to 50 pounds of spices uh, and things for his burial. And so there's at least three people conservatively, but at least three people who are handling the lifeless body of Jesus. And then we read of the Marys, uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They're, they're there. They're, they're watching the whole thing. They watched the crucifixion. They were the, when all the disciples scattered, the women stuck around. And they're, they're watching it all. And we're told that they were sitting there opposite the tomb. So while Joseph and Nicodemus are doing their, their, their thing, preparing Jesus' body for burial, wrapping it in linen, layering the spices in the wrap and the spices in the wrap, they're watching it all. They're sitting right there. So you've got no less than, than three people who have handled the, the lifeless body of Christ plus the two Marys who are sitting there watching the whole process. Now, we know that the Marys had a plan. We, we find it actually in verse 1 of chapter 28. Um, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, they are already heading down to the tomb. First thing in the morning, they're on their way down. They're, they've gone to go and, and prepare his um, body, uh, wrap it some more, and, and, and finish sort of the preparation process. If you recall, it was the the ninth hour when Jesus cried out and died, three o'clock in the evening. At sundown, roughly six o'clock that night, 
the Sabbath would begin on Saturday. And so Joseph and Nicodemus and the Marys and they're all in a bit of a rush to get Jesus' body wrapped and, and covered and in the tomb and then back home before sundown. So you can sort of feel their urgency. You can feel their, their hurry. And so the women were planning on coming back first thing Monday morning. As soon as the Sabbath is over, they're on their way down to the tomb to, to finish, to sort of complete his burial, if you will. You know, it's easy to read, I think, this passage and to, to miss some important information. It's easy for us. We talk about the death and burial of Jesus so frequently that we don't think about the implications of that. We have the testimony of Joseph and Nicodemus, and the centurion, and the Marys. Now, okay, I realize none of them, you know, went to medical school. I realize none of them have, have you know, medical training in any way, shape, or form. But you put five, six, seven, and plus the guards, plus the other people that are around, somebody's going to notice if Jesus isn't really dead. You don't put mostly dead people in the tomb. That's all the Princess Bride you're getting this morning. And so you have this confirmation. These people are all testifying to the fact that Jesus is actually completely dead. Here's why that matters. Read that backwards for a second. Because if Jesus has died, it means he was born. The, the, the death of Jesus confirms for us his incarnation. It confirms for us that the Son of Man has actually taken on flesh and, and whatever he assumes of ours, he then redeems. You and I are actually encouraged by the fact that his death means he really was one of us. He really had taken on flesh. He really was fully God, yes, fully man also. Not one or the other, not, not without, not separate, but, but He truly had become man. There's a second comfort in this. If Jesus was buried, and that means that Jesus really died, what that means is, that you as a believer, your sins are actually paid for. Not, not theoretically paid for, not hypothetically paid for. It means they actually, you have been atoned. Your sin has been fully, the debt that you owe as a sinner has been fully paid. Jesus wasn't guilty of cosmic treason like we are. Jesus wasn't Guilty of sin. But the wages of sin is death. Why then did he, die? did he die? Because he bore our sins. Take comfort in the fact that the death of Jesus means you as a believer, trusting in him alone for your salvation, your sin, past, present, and those that you haven't even 
thought about yet have been paid for by Christ. You get that on the cross. When Jesus says, it is finished, He means it's finished. Not it's mostly finished or, or I guess, I suppose, this is good enough. No, he means it's actually finished. That your debt is actually paid in full. There's a third comfort in this. A third benefit for me in the burial of Jesus. And that is that it gives us peace and comfort to face our own death. To face our own burial. You know, there's a very real sense in which Christ has sanctified the tomb because He's already been there. You don't need to fear your death. You don't need to fear your burial because Christ has already endured that also for you first. And so in that sense, your casket is sanctified because Christ has already experienced His own Burial. We have comfort in death. We have comfort in our burial because we know that death isn't the end, but we also have comfort because we know that Christ has experienced everything for me, including that. We keep going back to, I say we keep going back to, this is the second time in the last few weeks I've sort of made reference to the old spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. The next line, of course, is nobody but Jesus. Your grave isn't even exempt from that truth. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen because I've got to go and be buried after I die. And Jesus says, yep, I've been there. I've sanctified the tomb already. And so the reality is when, when we describe Christ, when we describe Jesus as our, as our high priest who has endured all that we have to endure, it includes the grave. He is not here. He had been here. He had been in the tomb. That's where his body had been. But he's not there now. He is not here. And you notice the second thing that the angel says, He is not here, for He has risen. The, the women run down to the tomb and they find it empty. That's not true. It, it actually wasn't empty. The linen wrapped around His body, the spices, those things were still there. But the body they were looking for wasn't there. They expected to find, you know dead Jesus, a, a dead man in the tomb. That's generally what you find in them, in tombs. And, and he wasn't there. They, they found the linen, they found the wrappings, they found the cloths, they found the spices, all the, the burial things, but they didn't find the body of Jesus. Instead, we find in verse 3 of chapter 28, they found an angel. Um, I think at that point, I would have just, I don't know what, I, I mean, dazzling white, 
um, who speaks to them sitting there on 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 the grave on the the tomb. Um, tells him, look, ha- have a look. He, he's not here. You've come to see Jesus. He's not here. Go ahead, look. You can you can look for yourself. And and if you read Luke, you you get their confusion. You get the Mary's sort of response of, you know that that feeling when um, the other day I, I was and I, can't, I wish I could place myself. Uh, back, I walked through the house. I put something down on a table and left to go do something. When I came back, it wasn't there because somebody thought it needed to go where it needed to go, not realizing I had grabbed it because I was going to take it. And, and you know that that the feeling. I hope I'm not the only one that does this. Like you kind of look at the spot where you put down the, and you, you get this puzzled look on your face, the furrowed brow. And you kind of go, you point, you point. Why, why do we point at NBC? Like, I, I put, you know, we start doing this. Wait, am I crazy? Did I, did I miss it? Did I put it down over here? Is this the wrong table? Am I in the wrong room? Like, you go through all the things that you could be getting wrong. And these women have shown up at the tomb and, and I picture them kind of, you know, you, you, like you're knocking on a door and then you back up and make sure you, I mean, this is the right address, right? You kind of back out again and go, hold on, is this the right tomb? Because I'm pretty sure we watched this on, as they buried him and, and it's not like they got it wrong. They knew exactly where they were going. Matthew's a little more matter of fact in his reporting, his account of the events, the angel says, he's not here, he's risen, uh, you can go see it. Oh, and by the way, go tell the disciples. And then all we get is that they're leaving to go tell the disciples and they meet Jesus. And on their way, bump into Jesus and they fall at his feet. And they see the reality of of that empty tomb. You know, the world has objections. The world has doubts. The world will look for any escape from a historical resurrection of Jesus. In fact, on Friday, on the Twitter, uh, a leading humanist in the United Kingdom... Uh, actually took to social media to remind everyone that dead people don't rise from the dead. Like, literally, it's just your reminder that people don't come back from the dead. And to which, you know, Christians are all responding, I know, right? Isn't that what makes it so amazing? People will have their objections. People are going to have their... Well, I mean... He wasn't really dead, uh, but somehow had the strength to roll the sealed stone away from the inside. If he was, if everybody, if all those people thought he was dead, but he wasn't really, and then suddenly had the energy to, that didn't make any sense. The disciples took his body. Well, they had to defeat the guards in order to do it. And even in our passage, the guards 
are like, look, let me tell you all what happened. And they conspired with the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders even said, look, we know you'll be in trouble for this. So if the Roman authorities come talking, you send them our way. We'll take care of them, is their language. In verses 11 to 15. People could argue the, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, took the body, but they would have come back a week or two later and said, look what we've got. <laughs> this thing's over. Go home. You're all crazy. People will argue that Rome took the body, but they also would have produced the body and said, hey, look, let's put an end to this whole Christianity thing, followers of Jesus. And certainly the centurions, if they are the, the guards, if they had been involved, any Roman soldier who would have been in, involved in this would have would have been beaten or even put to death. See, the part of the point is we don't just read the Bible by faith and assume these things are possible. They're, they're recording for us actual human history. Christ was really buried. He was really dead. He was really buried. And He really physically rose again. The world around us wants some human explanation. They want some earthly sort of science, logical explanation for everything they face. Uh, they want some science, logical um, explanation for um, uh, that which only can be God's sovereign hand at work in His world. In fact, it's easier for the natural man to believe completely illogical, inconsistent ideas than to believe that God raised His Son from the dead. The tomb is empty because Jesus is risen. Uh, and the Marys become the first preachers of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, women become the first proclaimers of the, the resurrection of Christ. How do you know Jesus is worthy of your faith and your trust? How do you know that belief in Christ is worth it? You get to do that, right? How do you know that, that faith in Jesus is actually worth it? Well, it's, we're told in verse 6. It's the words of the angel. He's not here, for He has risen. Look, we, we need Jesus to die for us to pay for our sin. We need Jesus to rise again so that death doesn't get the last word. You have hope in this life and in the life to come because Christ has defeated everything that sin and Satan can throw at Him. The, the greatest weapon, sort of that, that last Ditch. It's that, that moment when all bets are off and nothing's going well. And so the army says, we, it's time to bring out the big guns, right? It's time to bring out our secret weapon. And we're going to use that. Well, sin's secret weapon is death because we're all naturally afraid of it. And Jesus says, 
your secret weapon, the thing that you think is the greatest power you have, the greatest trump card you have up your sleeve, I've already beaten that too. We have no need for fear because Christ has defeated the thing that we most fear. And so He gives us life. The empty tomb means that He's atoned for our sin. It means that He's been accepted as the sacrifice for our sin. It means that He's conquered sin and death and the grave and He's done it all for you. He's not here. He is risen. And lastly, as He said... You know, the, the real problem that these women and the disciples had was a memory problem. Everybody knew, in fact, we see it in our passage. I mean, the reason the guards wanted to seal the tomb and to put extra guards, extra soldiers there was because they remembered the, the Jewish leaders, verse 62 of chapter 27. The chief priests, the Pharisees, they got together with Pilate and said, look, he said he was coming back to life on day three. Seal that tomb. Send more guards. We could, we could look back to Matthew 16 and see where in Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Mary and the disciples had a memory problem. The reality is they should have known He wasn't going to be there when they got there. Because He's been saying all along, well, not all along, but gradually His earthly ministry, He began to, to unfold more and more that he would be killed, he would be buried, and he would be raised again on the third day. They should have known he would be living. Why would we look for the living among the dead? Why do you go to the graveyard to look for people who are alive? The angels reminding these women, he's not here, he has risen, just like he told you he would. Believer, be encouraged. God's Word cannot fail. God's Word, even the thing we most fear, even the thing we think of as most final, death, can't prevent God's Word from being brought to reality. The promises of God are sure and certain. And this angel's reminding these women that he's doing exactly what he had said he would do. God's word is sufficient for us. We don't need to look outside of God's word uh, to, to find out how to understand who Christ is and how we might love and serve him. God's word is sufficient. He's not here, for he is risen just as he said. Let me make just two applications uh, from this passage. The first is I, I need to make this one 
uh, observation. Um, so you, you read in other passages um, earlier in Matthew, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning sort of an end to the old covenant sacrificial system. The, the, in the temple, the curtain that separated the, the, outer, the inner room from the outer, the curtain tears and it's, it's ripped in half and it's torn from top to bottom. And, and the implication there is the old covenant sacrificial system is no longer um, uh, because the, the true spotless lamb has now been sacrificed. He's now shed his blood for us. There's no need for killing bulls and goats and lambs and rams and things anymore because the true lamb has been sacrificed. And yet, the Sabbath was kept by everybody in this passage. Joseph, Nicodemus, and those making sure to get him buried before the Sabbath began so they could rest on the Sabbath day. The Marys, they didn't come back Saturday morning to the tomb. They rested on the Sabbath. They came back on the first day of the week. Even Jesus rested on the Sabbath. Even in death, Jesus is keeping the Sabbath for us. But I want you to notice even with the end of the old covenant system, the Sabbath principles didn't end. You and I are called to honor and to keep the Sabbath as a day of rest and worship for God's people. A second application. Um, the, the, the gospel writers go to great lengths to make sure we know that Jesus physically died. He was physically buried, that he physically uh, rose again uh, from the dead. It, it's, he's not some ghost. He's not some nebulous idea. He's not some random concept. He's a person physically raised from the dead. And that, that means something. We need to understand that Christ still has a body. That the second person of the Trinity still has a body. They watched him ascend up into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. They saw him because he has a body. Uh, we understand the work of Christ because he suffered and died and was buried and rose again to save us from our sin. In other words, Jesus paid it all. There is nothing left for you to do to gain to earn, to accomplish your freedom from sin, your salvation, your declaration of righteousness before God. And that's what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Because in every other religion, you have to find your way to God. And this tells us that God has come to you. That He has sought you. So run to Christ. Run there and find forgiveness at the cross. Because the one who was crucified for you, died for you, buried for you, has defeated death itself. Has defeated sin. And He is therefore worthy of our faith and trust. Let's pray together.
Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son to live, to suffer, to bleed, to die on our behalf. And we pray that you would grant us that resurrection power, that resurrection hope uh, in this life to do battle with sin. But also, would you would you use this truth, this reality to make the world to come that much sweeter to our taste, to our eyes, to our minds, to our hearts. May we long for a world in which there is no sin, in which we might dwell with Christ forever. Would you root out fear and draw us to a deeper faith and trust in Christ? We ask all of this in His Holy name. Amen.